This morning our text will be Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. As we have now gone past the beginning of Luke's Gospel, and we now begin the middle of Luke's Gospel. It seems like we've gotten there quickly, but now we are about to begin the center of Luke's Gospel, the story of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would please give your attention to the reading of the Word of God. The Word of God is completely without error. The Word of God is completely sufficient. And you must remember, especially today, as you hear hard words from God, that the Word of God is completely authoritative. Luke, chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we... What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize with water. But he 
who is mightier than I, is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this them all, that he locked up John in prison. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You, Lord, that You teach us, but more importantly, Lord, that You change us by Your Word. Be with us this morning, Lord. Convict us. Comfort us. Change us. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is another one of these well-familiar passages, but as we get into it and we listen intently, it can surprise us a bit. It seems that although John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, although he was the cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ, although his father was a priest, somehow he had missed the seminar on how to win friends and influence people. Because you see, he has harsh words for us. Note the pronoun. Not harsh words for them, but harsh words for us. He is preaching the good news, Luke tells us. And this good news is about what God does in the lives of His people. And specifically here we will focus on the doctrine of repentance. And as we look at this text, we see God doing four things. For ease of remembrance, each of them begins with a C. We see first that God comes to us in the beginning of the passage. And then we see that God challenges us. And then thirdly, we see that God commands us. And then finally, we see that God calls us. Doing all of this by the work of His servant, John the preacher. Well, let's begin then by looking at our passage, Luke Ever the good historian sets the stage for us. You know what this is like when you are watching a film and at the bottom of the screen in letters they tell you the date or the, or the place. They give you information so you don't have to wonder where you are and who this is. It's background to set you up. And, and Luke is ever careful. Remember, this whole gospel is a detailed, orderly account so that we might know who Jesus is. And right from the beginning, Luke's detail provides us with 
a piece of humor that helps us to understand that this is God's word. He lists a group of people, the last of whom people were convinced didn't exist. This Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, the critics said, Luke, you fell asleep at the wheel. Lysanias lived 60 years earlier. Well, he must have just made a mistake. That happens in the Bible, doesn't it? Until later they found out there was a second Lysanias that lived exactly at this time. You see, Luke gives us great detail, more detail than even the historians of the day. And this is important because as we realize that God comes to us, He does not come to us in a vacuum, does He? Each of you have lives that you're living right now. You don't put them on hold, do you? You have strained relationships. You have financial challenges. You have hard work. You have complaints about the government, complaints about society. And Luke wants to remind us that this is the context in which God comes. He tells us, first and foremost, it is the time in which Rome ruled the world. Tiberius Caesar was the reigning emperor. And Pontius Pilate was the governor. So here Luke reminds us that John lived in a world run by a power-mad, corrupt, pagan king. We don't have as much to complain about, do we? But it gets even worse. You see, locally, maybe you don't have to worry about Caesar. He's over in Rome, and Pontius Pilate doesn't pay any attention to me. Who are my local rulers, Luke? Well, let's see. There's, there's Herod, who's known for his wickedness, and his wickedness, and that's right, his wickedness. And there's his brother, Philip, who is only able to gauge his wickedness based on his brother. The two of them conspire, kill relatives, fight with one another, steal each other's wives. This is not exactly the Waltons. Well, that's okay. At least we can turn to the church. We can come into the church doors and be safe. Luke says, well, there's only one question here. The reign of the high priest is Annas and Caiaphas. Now, right there, that should be a tip-off. The high priest, two people. There should be one high priest, right? Well, that's because Annas was high priest and had been driven out for being corrupt, but he had managed to get family members brought into the high priesthood so he could be the power behind the throne. So Annas is known for corruption, and wickedness. And Caiaphas is known for going along with corruption and wickedness. So even in the church, it's pretty bad. And then throw on top of that that we know that for 400 years, God has not spoken through a prophet. It's dark times. It's difficult times. And you see, our tendency is to think that in these dark and difficult times, God has abandoned us and we have no hope. But Luke tells us that it is exactly in the worst of times that God breaks through. His word comes in the person of John. And being a good Presbyterian, I probably should say John the baptizer, not John the Baptist. We'll just call him John for now. But he is an Old Testament prophet extraordinaire. 
He comes declaring the Word of God. Do you notice how Luke begins? Before we're even introduced to John, he says, the Word of God came. That's what's important. John is just the messenger. And he comes and he looks like an Old Testament prophet. Matthew tells us that he has odd clothes and his hair is scraggly and his beard is scraggly and he has no table manners and he calls people out and he he calls a spade a spade. You would just look at him and say, wow, that's somebody like Elijah. That must have been what Isaiah was like. That must have been what Amos was like. And he comes in thundering and declaring, you know, fire and brimstone modeled itself after John. He comes with the Word of God, and the Word of God comes in the darkest of times, first in a place we don't expect, in the wilderness. I guess God didn't get the message that it should come into the city. And second, in a person we don't expect, this scraggledy prophet John. And the message that comes out is one that thunders for the ages. It is a message of repentance. Repent, John says. Repent because you need forgiveness. You're sinners. You are wicked. You must turn from your evil ways. Now imagine how that goes along in polite society. Imagine how that goes along in polite church society. It's a call for repentance, a call for forgiveness, and a call to make that real. He comes with a baptism, and the baptism shows that the repentance is real. Not only must you repent, not only must you say you repent, you must do something publicly to show you repent, so that everyone around can look and say, this guy thinks he's a sinner. Ooh, not exactly the way to make yourself the most popular man in town. He comes thundering, and then he speaks this word from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He comes following in Isaiah's footsteps. This is from Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 3. But you may remember verse 1, the context. Isaiah 40, verse 1 is, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Salvation is here, God declares. And because of that, God is here with salvation. The voice is come, and you must prepare the way. The anticipation is over, John says. The reality is here. The big day is here. You know what that's like, don't you? You're getting ready to go on that big family vacation to Disneyland or Hawaii the Grand Canyon. And you talk about all the things you're going to do and mom describes all the packing that has to be done and the kids describe all the things they want to do and dad moans and groans about the driving. And then the day finally comes and you get in the car and you strap yourselves in and it's not anticipation anymore. It's here. No. Oh, now we can officially enjoy it and have fun. That's what's come. There's no more waiting, John says. He's here. Prepare His way. And by preparing His way, He is calling on an ancient custom from Isaiah's day. 
when the king would come to a city, they would have to prepare the way. You know, it's not dissimilar to what happens even in our nations today. When the president comes to a city, they shut down entire sections, don't they? Traffic comes to a standstill. Only the motorcade is allowed to go through. Why? Because we certainly don't want the president caught in a traffic jam. We want it to be smooth. And this is what they did for kings. The king would say, I am coming. And the herald would come first. And he would say, prepare the way. This road is sorry. Make it better. And that's all bumpy. We don't want the royal carriage going up and over bumps. Smooth it out. And get rid of those trees. The road needs to be wider. This is a royal entrance. And this is what would happen. So people would understand this. They would understand what it would mean to have a king. But you have to understand what Isaiah said and what John is saying. God is coming. And you have to prepare the way. And the only way to prepare the way for how big a coming this is, is you have to knock down mountains and fill up valleys. This is beyond anything you have ever seen. God is on the move. What a king we serve. You see, this is a way of getting us to understand how magnificent the coming king is. I have a habit when we have visitors here to Houston, when I try to describe to them and maybe even boast a little bit about Houston. I have one go-to line that always gets me the open jaw. I say, you know, here in Houston at I-10, it's like 20-something lanes across. You count the feeder roads. What? Yeah, 20-something lanes. Wow! That's huge. I know it is. It's huge. It's important. But do you see how that visual image catches us? That's what John wants us to catch. You have to understand, this is who Jesus is. He's coming. He's the king. And you need to be ready. But God doesn't just come. He also challenges. For John breaks right in in verse 7. He says to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Again, did not get a chance to talk to the church growth movement. Don't you know you have seekers? You should get the right brand of coffee for them. Don't you know you should butter them up a little bit? No, no, no. Brood of vipers. Bunch of poisonous snakes. That's what he says. Because you see, the interesting thing is, he's coming out here with this message of repentance, and everybody's out there. The word that Luke uses is a crowd. It's a big throng. It's standing room only. And you see, the reason they came is because they were ready to get fixed. Well, listen, let's hedge our bets. You know, my old grandmother used to talk about this God thing and this heaven thing. Hey, you know, John must really know what he's doing. He yells a lot. He must be a good preacher. Let's go over there. Let's get baptized. And then we don't have to worry about that anymore. And John says, you can see that there's a problem, but you're fake. You're insincere. 
You think just by coming and getting around the trappings that you'll be made right with God. So what does that mean? Well, the hard thing it means is this. Are you here today for the trappings? Because your parents made you come. Because your wife made you come. Because you think by sitting in a chair here and listening to the pastor go on that God owes you salvation. You see, people are people. Whether it's first century or 21st century. You can't come for the trappings. The trappings will not save you. On the final day, John says, they will not be able to be pled. You can't say, well, I went to Sunday school 13 weeks in a row. It's not going to matter. You see, John knows they're not here because of their heart. He knows this is not an expression of repentance. He knows that they're lost. And he says, you know, wanting forgiveness is not enough. Some of you may be here today and you may sincerely want to be forgiven. That's wonderful. But it's not enough. Everyone wants to be forgiven. The question is, are you ready to do what it takes to be forgiven? Are you ready to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to repent of your sins and leave that way of life behind and show that you are changed by the power of God? You see, these crowds were like snakes. Why were they like snakes? Have you ever wondered that? Why brood of vipers? Other than it's a pretty good insult. Because snakes know when there's a fire. And when they see the fire, they flit out to their holes. They know enough to escape the destruction. But they don't want to stop being snakes. They want to be safe snakes. You see, people can be like that too. We know enough that we don't want to have mountains fall down on us. We don't want to have unquenchable fire. We don't want to be destroyed. We don't want a worm that is never satisfied gnawing at us. We want ease and comfort and blessing. But the question is, are you willing to stop being one who is bound for destruction and to be one who is like Jesus? That's John's question. Others are sure they've got it figured out. Look at verse 8. They trust in themselves. John says to them, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Now you can imagine, John is railing against those who have come just to get the outer washing. And you have to remember that baptism was a Gentile thing. You were baptized as a Gentile so you would be clean and pure enough to be a good Jew. You had to come into the people of God. And so as John is railing, there are people on the sides going, oh yeah, give it to them, John. I'm telling you. They need to be baptized. They need to understand. They're not children of Abraham. They don't know the Scriptures. They don't know what they're doing. They're not like us. And John wheels and he looks and he says, don't even get started, would you? You know that look. Your mom usually gives you that look. Wags a finger. Don't even think about it. That's what John's saying. 
You can't even go there. That's such a weak argument. You can't trust in who you are. Just because you're born from someone, does you think God is obligated to love you? And you see, they might say, oh, but the promises are to Abraham. He has to preserve us. Because if he were to destroy us and punish us, what about all those wonderful covenant promises, John? And John says, listen, you're sons of Abraham. You ever heard a story about a guy named Isaac? Abraham said to himself, if God had to keep his promises by raising Isaac from the dead, he would. What makes you think he couldn't make his people rise up from rocks and stones and trees if he needed to? Seems impossible to you. But God can do whatever he needs to keep his promise. He's not bound by you. Then there's a third type of person some of us may be like. Some of us may go for the forms. Others of us may be looking to our attendance in church. How many Bibles we have on our walls. Who we are that God loves us. But some of us just simply are procrastinators, aren't we? You know, it's the kind of people that when you look up in your car and you see that the oil change was due 2,000 miles ago, and you say, yeah, I'll have to get around to that. It's where you say to your kids, would you please get started on this for me? And they say, just a minute, Ma. Sure, I'll get to it just a little bit. And everybody knows the little bit never comes. You see, it's funny to procrastinate about cleaning. It's potentially harmful to procrastinate about oil changes. But it's eternally deadly to procrastinate about your relationship with the Lord. That day will come. And worse yet, you can't put that day on your calendar. You could be in perfect health and God could take you. You could be struck with illness that you didn't expect. You have no way of knowing when you should be prepared for. And you see, John says, don't be preparing for some far off day. Prepare now. He says in verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Complete destruction is here upon you. When you take the axe to the root of the tree, it does not grow back. There is no working this out. There is no deal to be made. John says, God is challenging you now. If you have put off meeting with God, if you have put off believing in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith until you graduate high school, you get married, you get your financial things in order, you retire, you're waiting too long. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. You see, God's wrath is destructive and it is inescapable. Today, Hebrew said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today you hear His voice. I'm certain of it because His word is being proclaimed. Do not harden your heart. Today, hear the word of the Lord through John. God challenges us. But thirdly, God also commands us. Look at verse 10. 
And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Now, there is, there is a very interesting strain that goes through this passage. It is in the word do. When John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, what he actually is saying in the Greek is, do fruit. Make fruit. Make and do is the same word. And so now someone comes to him and says, what do you mean by do fruit? What do you mean by make fruit? What should we do? What they're essentially saying is a very practical question that you should ask yourselves. What would bearing fruits look like, John? If that's something I'm supposed to do, if fruit is the outpouring of repentance and faith, if it is the consequence of a relationship with God, what does it look like? What is repentance? First and foremost, I think repentance is seeing our sin, seeing that we need a Savior. The confession puts it wonderfully. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to repent of his particular sins. Particularly. So please, do me a favor. Do not leave this building today and say, you know what, I'm going to repent of being mean. I'm going to repent of not being loving. I'm going to repent of not being spiritual enough. That's a waste of both of our times. That's fuzzy land. And what happens in fuzzy land? Nothing. Nobody grows. Go home and say, I am going to repent of harsh words that I have said to my spouse. Period. I am going to repent of laziness in reading my Bible. I am going to repent of the things that I watch on a computer and television. I am going to repent of the lies that I tell my parents to keep them off my back. Particular. You must see your sin, not some generality. Don't get lost in the fog. Take an inventory of your sins. Because each and every particular one is paid for by Jesus. Jesus didn't die for fog and fuzziness. He died because you and I are wicked, specific sinners. Praise be to God that Jesus has come. And you see, that's the second step of repentance. It's not just seeing our sin, but then seeing the Savior. Knowing that, that God has sent His Son to live a perfect life and to die a death of atonement on the cross that we might be free from sin and that we might be able to have the gift of repentance. But it's not enough to just see. We must also do. We must turn from our sin. We must turn from our sin to new obedience. What does that mean? It means, dear saints of Christ Church, you must stop blaspheming. You must stop speaking of God in flippant tones. 
you must stop speaking of him irreverently and failing to honor him among others. You must stop violating the Lord's Day. You must stop dishonoring your parents. You must stop murdering people that cut you off in traffic by speaking words of violence and thoughts of death in your mind. You must stop lying. You must stop stealing. You must stop wanting what other people have. You have to. And the good news is, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, He grants you repentance, and it can be found in Jesus. You don't need to despair. That's why Jesus came. He came that you might be more like Him, that you might shed those old ways and live a life of new obedience. John tells us, you have to do this. He gives very specific examples. He gets right in our faces. He takes the subject that we don't like to talk about. When they say, well, what do we do? He says, well, let me tell you what you do. Let's start with a a nice, sensitive subject. Your pocketbook. Have you thought about how money affects the way you live and give testimony to Jesus? He says, you need to stop being self-focused, looking just at me. He says, if you have two tunics, give somebody one. Now, do not go home and find a ratty old t-shirt to give to somebody. There's a principle here. What he says is, if you have, don't hoard. Share of your things. Share of your time. Share of your talent. Be generous, because you don't need to worry if God will ever give you any more stuff. That's relying on yourself. And then the tax collectors come up, and they say, what do we do? And you have to understand the tax collectors are the most hated people in all of the land because their job is worse than the IRS agent. You see, the IRS agent is not a good person in American society. And think about how our taxes work. We go through and we fill out taxes and we decide how much we think we owe and we send it in. And maybe they come back to us and say, no, we think you owe more. And when they do that, it's painful, isn't it? You've got to come out with years and years and years of documents. You've got to do all kinds of things. You've got to explain to them. They never understand, and it's ridiculous. Now, imagine if instead of some of us being audited and going through that, all of us had someone come into our house, open our drawers, and say, Oh, you got this. That's mine. How many, how many dresses you have? Open your closet. Give me that. And if on top of that, the only way he got paid was by taking more then you owed in taxes because he, te- he kept the extra. So think about what kind of people would be drawn to that job. Those who love stealing and wickedness. And they say, what do we do? And he says, you need a radical change of life. Your whole life needs to be reoriented. You've chosen an occupation in which your sin benefits you. You need to turn everything around. Everything you've based your life around needs to be different. That call comes to you as well. It could be that your life is based on your ability to get and to sin. And you need to turn your life around. And then there are these soldiers that come and say, what should we do? And he says something that I think all of us can identify with. He says, stop 
moaning and complaining and whining about what you have and how much you're paid. You complain about it so much that what you do is you harass people to get more money. And you justify it because you say, we should be paid more. And if they're not going to pay us more, well, we'll shake down some other people. He focuses on something that's very personal. Money. But there's a good end to the story. There's a lot of yelling in this sermon, isn't there? There's a lot of repenting in this sermon from John. There's a lot of bad news. And the, it's almost humorous that at the end of our passage, it says, and so with many other exhortations. The word there is the word for encouragements. And so with many other encouragements and good news, John said to them. And we stop and we say, wait a minute, Luke, did you, did you lose some of the recording? Encouragements? Brood of vipers. Good news. God could use the stones instead of you. Give up what you have. Change your life radically. Change who you are. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Oh, my. If that's good news. But you see, it's in a context. Look at verse 15. The people have an expectation. They're wondering if John is the Christ. And he says, no, you have to understand. The mighty one is coming. I can't hold a candle to him. I can't tie his shoelaces. Could you imagine their thoughts? This prophet of God speaking the word of God and thundering and convicting and changing people. And he says, you have not seen anything yet. Who are we waiting for? How great is he? What can he do? What words can he say? John says, judgment is coming. And he gives us this image that I think is lost on our modern sensibilities. The way that in the ancient days you got grain was you harvested it in from the fields. And in order to keep the nutritious part and get rid of the husks, what you would do is you'd take the equivalent of huge yard rakes. And you would go in an area and you would throw it up in the air from the rake. And the wind would blow all of the light chaff away. And the heavy good stuff would stay. And what would you do with all that light junk? Well, you'd just burn it. Because it was good for nothing. It was in the way. John says that's what the Messiah is going to do for the whole world. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Do you want to be found light in his sight? His winnowing fork is in his hand. Judgment is coming. There is an unquenchable fire. This is something that 21st century evangelicals do not like to talk about anymore. There is a hell. It is real. It is painful. And it is forever. You must understand that. For me to sugarcoat that is to lie to you for your danger. John says, there's a reason you must repent. And the good news is that the one who is coming not only has chaff that he is blowing away, but he has wheat. And he's separating them out so that the wheat can be his. And he can use it. And he can bless it. 
You see, the good news of the gospel is, though hell is real, Jesus is realer. And so, the good news is that there is now a decision for everyone who will listen to John. You would think everybody would have. You would think that after all that he has said, everyone would say, this makes so much sense. I don't want to die in unquenchable fire. I don't want to be chaff. I don't want to be against God. But we see here that the human heart is deceitful. And Herod comes to him and he says, you know what, on top of all of the other wickedness I have done, I'm going to lay yet more wickedness. I want to shut God up. So I'm going to lock John away. This is a challenge for us. The Bible speaks to us words that are hard for our lives. We can't put John the Baptist in jail, can we? But we can close our Bibles. We can give off from praying. We can stop from speaking to brothers and sisters in the Lord about the things of God, can't we? There is a decision before you now. Will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Will your life be changed? Will you bear fruits for repentance? Will you trust Jesus by faith and know that you will never be the same again? Each and every day that decision is before you. May God give each of us the grace we need to hear the call of Jesus to embrace Him by faith, and to be changed forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before You this morning as a people who need Your grace. We are without hope, O Lord, apart from You. Please bless us by Your presence. Grant us the faith and repentance that we need to come to Jesus. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.